So David, thanks for coming on, man. No, it's a pleasure to be here, Adam. Thank you. So for those who don't know who you are, aren't, aren't aware of who you are, please introduce yourself, what you do, uh, you know, what's your background, etc. Yeah, no worries. So uh, I wear a, a few hats. I, I recently had someone introduce me to the term blended professional, um, which is, is it accurately describes what I am, but I don't like it because it makes me sound pretentious and full of myself. But basically, um, at the moment, I um, complete my PhD. I suppose, in applied strength and conditioning or exercise physiology. So I look at inter-individual and sex-related differences in adaptation to resistance training. So basically, why do we not all respond the same to the same stimulus in resistance training? And is there a role for biological sex in there? Do um, men and women respond differently? And if so, why? Um, so that's my, my research domain, along with some kind of other interest in healthy age and, and, and sports nutrition and stuff. Um, then also I, I work for Rugby Academy Ireland. So I'm director of education and research there. So my research uh, aligns with that. There's a, a rugby focus on my research. And then within the academy, I um, oversee some of the educational um, programs we run and would be the, the lead tutor on some of our personal training and s diplomas. And then within with our full-time guys and girls in the academy, I help with um, some of the sports science and, and SNC side of stuff with the management of that as well. And um, then on, I run my own business, then I suppose consultancy along with that. So Synapse Performance, which would be working one-to-one with um, athletes, also um, consulting them with some corporate entities. Um, most namely, probably I'm the research and development officer for Uplift, so a strength and conditioning and coaching software. So I, I, I'm involved heavily with those. And then just a few other kind of consultancy gigs here and there. So again, I'm a man that easily gets bored, so I, I have to try to keep myself busy. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a, a lot of different things there. I don't know how you get time to do them all. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's that's great. It's very interesting, David. Um, I wasn't aware that your your PhD was on the the, the differences between uh, or the, the potentially the differences between uh, female and male's ability to, to gain muscle. I think I might have heard something before previously where, and I don't know if this is right, but females are can actually gain at a similar rate, but they just start at a at a lower kind of lean body mass. Is that is that true? Or obviously yes. that's very <laughs> that's very washed down, and you know it's what you're research and it's, it's not probably quite so clear cut but sort of yeah so like it, there's a huge gap in the literature here and and it does appear so like i again and this is, is speculation because we're still waiting on the data to come through but there, there has always been that kind of thing is like oh women don't gain muscle as the same rate as men but it appears that they are more than capable uh, of doing it and it is a case as you say women just are starting from a lower lean body mass. So it's just the same proportional rate doesn't translate to the same um, net amount. So you know what I mean? If, if someone is gaining, again, an outrageous amount, 1% of, of lean body mass um, per week, um, if you're starting at 30 kilograms of lean body mass compared to 60 kilograms, it, it's twice the amount. And that um, obviously has a compounding effect at, at the same percentage gain the men will um, see larger increases week on week or whatever your testing period is. Um, so I think that's one factor. And then in, in an athletic population, I think the main differences we see 
um, at the moment could simply be down to um, training age um, because just with more, even in athletic populations, women seem to be introduced to resistance training and structured resistance training at a much later age than their male counterparts. Mm, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And if, if someone was gaining 1% of their <laughs> 1% of the lean body mass per week. I'd wonder what cycle they're on. Um, but so, so, so what's the difference then between, say, personal training and strength and conditioning? I know that's something that's often, or people often misinterpret that it's the same thing. Um, can you tell us what the difference is? I know that I, I, when I did my personal training search or whatever you want to call it many years ago, I think I had completed it in the weekend because it was uh, it was one of the ones that you can do online you just need to self-study but I had already pretty much known a lot of the stuff so um, it was a bit of a joke to be honest um, I need it for insurance purposes but what's the difference then between personal training and, and strength and conditioning yeah it's it's that that would be a rabbit hole to go down because I suppose personal training is viewed as as that kind of within the the gym environment um, with general population, I suppose, is what it's viewed, working at one-to-one with gen pop or running exercise classes, spin classes, whatever it may be, where strength and conditioning has, has been viewed as for athletic populations. And even when you do your personal training diploma, there's usually now there's like add-on sorts for personal trainers in S&C. And again, it's aimed at um, working with, with athletes or people with sports performance goals. So that's classically what it would have been seen as that personal training was working with general population for kind of general health related outcomes where strength and conditioning is working with um, athletic populations for more performance based outcomes. Now that's not to say that health and performance are, are mutually exclusive. They can often be one and the same um, not always, especially at the elite level. But for me, I, I think that the scope really needs to change and the two industries need to come aligned in a, in a certain way because strength and conditioning I think needs to has applications and strength and conditioning coaches have skill sets that are applicable far outside the sporting domain um, I personally would like to see strength and conditioning coaches kind of utilized more so in the community-based setting in terms of like essentially what, what most of them are 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 highly qualified individuals in, in terms of resistance training. That's their, their bread and butter and, and, and niche domains of resistance training often. But they could have quite an effect in a community setting, encouraging older adults to engage in resistance training, to working with children in the community, maybe obese children, or um, and using developing their fundamental movement skills, introducing those to resistance training, because I suppose that's my goal in, in, in long term is to be an advocate for resistance training for pretty much everyone, for all populations. Um, the evidence is there to support that. I, I don't know. Like the question, say 20 years ago, the question was, oh, who should resistance train or who would benefit from it? Where I think based on the research now, it has to be flipped that the question is who shouldn't resistance train? And, and the answer is very, very few, if, if any individuals. So I suppose that's kind of where it is is that personal training have developed um foundational level skills um in the general domain that they can work with a wide range of people and help them to achieve general and, and health related outcomes a lot of the time where strength and conditioning coaches have been trained to a higher level in the maybe the strength side of stuff and the condition for sports performance but that being said 
people in general, there's kind of S&Cs are put up on a pedestal as, as being kind of a higher qualified professional. But there's a, a lot of S&Cs that would not make good personal trainers, that they would not fit back into that. So um, again, it, I'd like to see the two industries become more aligned or work harmoniously. But um, I, to be honest, I think the biggest damage that has been done is that it's been called strength and conditioning. And that kind of pigeonholes it into one little area where if it was kind of more around athletic development, maybe, or, or I don't know um, what you would even kind of call it. Because when you pigeonhole people into just elite performance and athletic performance, I think you um, nullify a lot of the good work that SNC coaches could do, especially mm-hmm. considering the amount of SNC graduates we have for very limited um, jobs in elite sport. Yeah, that's true. Um... So with your role then um, as part of the academy, do you, do you coach not just in terms of, or do you not just build like their, their strength plans or strength training plans? Do you also help them with their conditioning and their fitness? As yeah, well? yeah. So we'd work um, right across the spectrum with them, yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. So kind of good segue into, I suppose, what would be the difference for training in a sporting environment or, you know, for, for sports performance versus trying to just generally get bigger and i think probably for most sports that at least have some form of power element or some form of contact even if it's a non-contact sport i think just getting bigger just seems to help um i remember when i was younger um i used to play basketball for the the underage irish team and i just naturally started lifting when i was in fourth year for people who don't know that's probably around 15 or 16 um and I just, I, I guess I kind of just, adapt, I grew kind of well from training and I was consistent. I really liked it. And it helped a lot because I wasn't that talented. Um, <laughs> but I just was, I was much stronger than people, of course, who don't lift. And it just helped me a lot when you're going to to the basket or defending, you know, rebounding, everything. It just seemed to help for everything. Um, and even then when I kind of got older and stopped playing, I used to be put in the post as a, <laughs> as an inside person, but I'm five foot 11. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it seems like most people who don't do any resistance training benefit, uh, from doing some getting a bit bigger, or stronger in whatever really sport. Um, I'm not sure about maybe running, et cetera, getting much bigger, but is there a, is there a major difference or, or when it comes to say the higher levels, what's the, the differences between training for, for sport and, and then say just for, for just, for just getting bigger because, think unless you're really genetically gifted you really can't get too big to be honest naturally Mm. yeah it's it's a good question and again i i always kind of maybe boringly um harp on about it just comes back to to principles and keeping the goal the goal Uh, and i think that that always has to be because for me i when i think about sports i'll reverse engineer a sport i'll say okay what are the demands what, what do we need? What kind of profile do our players have to have? And we have that data. We know what an international prop looks like, an international front row. We know kind of generally what size they need to be. Um, so we look at, you know, what profile do they need to have to play at that level? What are the demands of the sport? What do we need to be? And that gives us a goal then to shoot for. We know, okay, from a, a performance standpoint, these are the metrics that we're kind of generally aiming for. These are the profile we want. And then it's reverse engineering that back to the first principles of, okay, to achieve these goals, 
what is the adaptation I'm trying to achieve? What is the desired outcome that I'm doing? Because that's, again, all the trend is we're trying to apply a stress in a strategic way that elicits the adaptation that we want to achieve. So I always ask myself, like, what is the adaptation I'm trying to achieve? And then once I'm clear on that, I can then say, okay, what is the principle that needs to be applied to um, achieve that adaptation? And once you are clear on this is my adaptation, this is the principle that must be adhered to and applied, well, then it's just your methods are countless because then I can say, okay, for this given individual, this given athlete in this context and environment, I choose this method is the best way to um, achieve that. So in a hypertrophy perspective, there's no difference in terms of the adaptation we're trying to achieve is hypertrophy if we want to put on a lean body mass. Now, again, I will say largely hypertrophy is hypertrophy. There is some evidence of, especially if you look at Cody Hahn's work, that there may be um, some evidence for um, sarcoplasmic versus myofibril hypertrophy, but that's really only a kind of the extreme high-end um, pump kind of stuff. For most um, sporting context hypertrophy is going to be hypertrophy it's not going to change um, do you think that just just to ask on that before i forget do you think that there would be much of a you think that then would translate to less force say if there's more say sarcoplasmic hypertrophy because it's not necessarily contractile tissue is that yeah what you're... that's 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 the general theory that if we got that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that um you wouldn't see the same um increases in strength as a result because as you said the, the tissue just isn't contractile so we know we need the contractile tissue. But again, I, I don't think that happens to any significant degree within the training paradigms that we generally use in sport. Because to elicit that, it does seem like you need some very high volume, high rep work, kind of low intensity. And I suppose at a cell level, it makes sense that your sarcoplasmic adaptations then would be more to facilitate that high buffering capacity needed, high um I suppose energy crisis that's going on in the cell through resistance training rather than just um, high muscle tension. But uh, again, uh, hypertrophy is hypertrophy, and we know what principle we need to apply. We need to progressively overload the amount of um, muscle tension we're putting on a muscle via volume, I suppose, is the best kind of surrogate measure over time. And what translates well to sport then is we see better. Um, hypertrophy outcomes from training through large ranges of motion from uh, training at long muscle lengths and as well, which thankfully translate well to sport because in sport you have to use large ranges of motion. You have to oftentimes put in uncompromised positions and generate force from um, long muscle lengths. So again, the hypertrophy is the same. The principles are the same. You just, I suppose, the nuances come in in the methods you may use um and and how you structure the program because the difference between just training for hypertrophy purely is you don't care about performance you you know what i mean if you're just training as a bodybuilder or for aesthetic purposes you don't have to perform at, at the weekend you don't have performance training um, and you don't have to do a lot of high intensity cardio along along with it so that's the the biggest thing is balancing the um sports performance training and the conditioning and the technical training with the hypertrophy training, because if it was just pure hypertrophy, we could probably do more afford to do more volume and um, do more work. Because with, with any athlete, we have a limited amount of stress we can place upon them in any one time frame. 
and that is usually a training week or a training block, they have a limited amount of stress. Now, everything they do is going to tap into that amount of that stress capacity. So if they're doing an on-pitch skill session, there's some of the stress gone, um, their capacity gone. If they have um, a match, that's more stress gone. So if it was just hypertrophy outcomes, 100% of our stress capacity we could devote to resistance training. Um, but with uh, rugby players or with athletes in general, we don't have that luxury. We need them that they are not overly fatigued or stressed to um, too much of a degree from the resistance training that when they go onto the pitch, they tear a hamstring or they, they tear a quad muscle or they don't perform well and get dropped then from the weekend or we've overreached them too much in the gym and then they have a poor performance on match day on Sunday and they lose. And then, okay, oh, we put an extra half kilo of muscle on them over six months, but they've lost a tournament. That's, that's no good to us. So it's, it's about finding that balance and um, that. Now, what I will say is when you work at a high level in rugby, you are lucky where the raw, um, what would you say, the... Um, if you, I don't like using the word product, but the raw product you're working with is much better in terms of if someone has got to um, senior rugby at a high level, the more than likely just through survivorship bias are someone that has better genetics that respond well and are able to balance these two modalities of training because you don't really get someone at that high level that struggles to put on muscle mass um, or that isn't able to hold a high degree of muscle mass while engaged in this high volume of, of on-field training then as well, because they've probably been weeded out and dropped at 14, 15 years yeah. of age or 16 because they don't a bit, respond that way. It's, it's a bit mad that they, I, I know it's in any sport where, where, the, where the money goes, the, the resources go, but that, that the ones probably that are coming through the, the ranks need the, the resources more so than the guys at the top maybe to kind of help them perhaps get there. But uh, it's, it's when they get to the top, when they've survived, that's when they get the all the support that they could could need. But how do you balance? Um, you know, it's quite easy if you're looking at just hypertrophy or just if you're just a powerlifter or something to to manage that fatigue and the overreaching. Well, you know, looking at your sets and your intensity, etc. Mm. But then when when you're when you're adding in sports on top of that with like a match or training um, skill sessions, how do you how do you kind of match? Because it's it's like a resistance training session isn't the same as a as a, a, a on pitch training sessions how do you kind of match that volume to look at the overall like allostatic load or whatever you want to call it to say okay we probably need to pull this back a little bit here or now we can push a little bit more with the resistance training yeah so as you said that's that's the correct term your allostatic load the amount of stress the total amount of stress being placed upon the, the organism or the athlete so there, you're going to use your 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 different metrics and i suppose how you periodize and set up your your training paradigm is going to have a huge influence um so within, within a typical training week you know what i mean in terms of your gym session it's fairly easy to quantify the amount of um of, of volume they're doing through whatever metric you want to use tonnage and um, number of hard sets just general rp average intensity average RAR that you're have them working at you can modulate that but the on-field stuff you can you can um have a big influence on that then as well because we're able to control some of the factors that we can control um, time on feet we can how long are they actually standing up on the pitch moving about we have the gps units we will we'll have targets 
for how much we want to cover in a certain session. And we'll break that down within a certain session, how much of that or what proportion we want to be high speed running meters um, compared to just, we'll have total distance covered, what proportion that should be high speed meters and, and your different bandwidths. And in an ideal world, it doesn't always happen, but you would work collaboratively with the, with the coaching staff then as well to kind of um, understand what do they want to get out of the session? What is their priorities? What do they want to work on? And then if you have a good relationship, you'll be able to make suggestions by, okay, well, if you're doing these small-sided games for the purpose of working on that skill or that um, tactic, maybe if you set it up and you suggest the weight, because we know that people working in a five-by-five square will cover a lot less distance and won't accumulate the same level of high-speed running as those working in a 10-by-10 or 20-by-20 square. So we can manipulate the constraints of the environment to elicit some of the demands that we want. Um, whether we want to work on Axel, Diesel, or get in, accumulate a lot more high-speed running and total distance covered. So that's what you're, you're, you're trying to balance then as well. Um, but that being said, I, I think as sports scientists, we sometimes can put too much faith in or too much belief in how well we're able to plan. You do need to be, I think, dynamic and be able to auto-regulate on the fly then as well. Because we can, yes, we can monitor um, the gym stuff. We can monitor the on-field stuff. We have our wellness surveys. We know on any given day what the subjective ratings are of our athletes in terms of how fatigued they feel, readiness to train. You know, we can go into, you can look at some of your objective markers. You can look at rest and heart rate, HRV, all these um, measures. But sometimes it is simply... Being having that ability to have a conversation with an athlete, read the athlete, and then make um, a call. Like if I have a high-profile player on that, you know, is going to be our, our key player for say a match on a Saturday, and on a Thursday morning we have a gym session, and he's saying to me, you know, I'm just not feeling it today, um, and he's supposed to do three sets of heavy squats or whatever it may be, just for example. Um, he's like, I'm, I'm not feeling it. And he's like, I'm just not feeling good or whatever. I'd like to take it easy. It, again, you, yeah, you'll have some players that are just trying to maybe lazy or that. But if this is someone that normally is, it loves training, big match on Saturday and telling me not feeling on Thursday, your risk to reward there. Yes, I've planned it. Ideally, you should do three sets of heavy squats. But if I force that athlete to do it, they're going to be pissed off at me. They're going to be pissed off in general. They probably won't go into the squats with the same intent that they normally would or should have. And then someone in that mindset, am I getting the best adaptation from them? Am I putting them at undue risk of injury? Or am I better off saying, okay, I'll tell you what, do me a favor, just warm up, do two sets, 70%, and then get on the foam roller and hit the sauna for a while. Um, that athlete has still done enough that, you know, we're getting some degree of stimulus, depending on what adaptation I'm trying to achieve. But I, the coach, have put them in a good mindset. They feel they're more recovered. They feel then that they're going to be in a better place for Saturday. So even if it's strategic use of the placebo, that's perfectly fine in terms of your job is to elicit and put the athletes in the position that they can get the best possible performances um, on match day. So like that, it's some of those nuances that you have to be careful about. And then from a global perspective, just setting up your um, periodization plan. Like there's some adaptations, like I, I, I don't prescribe to block periodization. 
um because i don't think it works well in a sporting context i would be more aligned with something i think it's termed kind of vertical integration where you're always chasing several adaptations all the time um but depending on the time of year and the athlete in front of you you're just going to dial up the emphasis on one adaptation uh, after the other uh, over the other um and some of those adaptations are more kind of suited to off season pre-season than in season um and then within that i think what works well kind of high performance sport is this vertical integration model also coupled with a high low model where we'll can try consolidate all our stresses say on a, on a given day um so say for example if we have a match on a sunday um in in our training week monday is probably going to be a low day in terms of the overall stress and load we're putting on people so that's going to be your walkthrough kind of low intensity pitch sessions with more working on walkthroughs maybe some of your upper body work then tuesday might be our high stress day so that's where we're doing lower body strength um power work and maybe our on-field conditioning and our hard contact session or whatever so and then wednesday low thursday a high day and then friday a low stress day leading into um um day off on saturday or a walk through on the saturday and then match on the sunday or whatever it may be so i think learning to balance that stress because you can't go high intensity high stress all the time and expect these people to perform well and, and not break mm. So do you, you use those kind of subjective uh, feedback mechanisms as a as a way to to see what their kind of injury risk is? Because obviously, if you're in a lab, you'd be checking like creatine kinase levels, something like that. But you can't be taking muscle biopsies after every training session in the gym. Um, how do you know or how do you perhaps mitigate that level of, of injury risk when they're coming into matches? Uh, is it like you said, don't put heavy sessions before games or before a few days before games yeah well i think conceptually there's a certain thing you need to get your head around in terms of as an snc coach we're almost have become brainwashed that our main job is just to prevent injury and that it's not true our main job is to put the athletes in the best position for performance and especially at elite performance you're always it's kind of walking a tightrope where in terms of I want to maximize adaptation without pushing them too far. But if I undercook them, then I've left some gains on the table. So you're always trying to balance that. And when you're working at that level, injury is inevitable. And especially in a game like rugby, injury is just going to happen. So this idea that you, you can't mitigate in, or you can mitigate it, but you can't eliminate injury risk. All you can do is know the risk factors and reduce the known risk factors. So like that is avoiding these huge spikes in, in, in training load week to week. Um, and again, I, I wouldn't describe to the acute to chronic uh, as such in terms of a sweet spot, but understanding huge variations in load week to week is probably not good. Um, having weak athletes is not good. Not having them exposed to high velocity, max speed running on a weekly basis is probably not a good tactic either. Um, not training them through full ranges of motion. That, that they, These are all the things that we need to do to um, lower our, our risk. And then look at the chronic trend load. So yeah, subjective markers in terms of athletes. And it's, again, we don't have the science to go too complex into it, but it's just simple things of, you know, looking at people's, how are you sleeping? Um, how do you feel overall? How excited are you to train today? 
how is your muscle soreness? Where are you sore? Um, and if you have this on a dashboard, that enables you then to have a conversation. And that's essentially all this subjective stuff does is initiate a conversation that you can then look at an athlete and speak to them. It's like, okay, you, I saw you um, said the hamstring was a bit sore today on your wellness. And then you talk to them, oh, how are you sleeping? And sometimes, you know, it's lifestyle factors, they're stressed, they're just, there's something going on either at home or in a relationship and they're just not in the mood for training and their headspace is not right. So again, that doesn't mean that you're going to pull them out of training. They still need to train and, and their stuff, but it's, this is where I suppose the art comes in with having a conversation with the other coaching staff, the medical staff or physio if it's on staff, um, weighing up the data you have and kind of making an informed decision that, okay, for this player, what do we want to do? Do we want to tell them go a bit easier today? Take, um, you know, don't, you don't need to get involved in the condition at the end of the session or something like that and, and managing that risk. But again, there's no exact science to that because uh, what I often say and talk to people, if it was an exact science, if it was a case that we just simply measure metrics and take data and then that data solely is what influences our decision, well, then we don't need an s &C coach. Then we can simply write a few lines of code and you know yeah. make savings so that that's it so on and we're not at that stage yet that we can line write a few lines of code that makes a decision whether an athlete train trained or not on a given day so you have to you you make these calls and sometimes they don't go the way you want and someone pulls up with a strain or a tear or whatever um but you just you, you have to live with that and then sometimes someone's data is exactly textbook where you want it to be they're hitting all the metrics and then they go out and something just tears and that happens. It's, mm. it's just the way it is. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned about the kind of using AI or something to, uh, to have an app. You see that in nutrition now, where there's like a coach, like a mm. nutrition coach that uh, adjusts your macros or something based on your, what you've done previously. But I guess it's a lot less complex than what a sports scientist would do. Um, even within that uh, AI within a, uh, and there, there is some great apps. That's fine if you have the behavior change and mm, habits exactly. side of yeah. stuff nailed down. But AI is not going to change behavior yeah. as such. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's why like, I have a few clients that had previously using them. And it doesn't take into account, like you said, the, the allostatic load or the fact that they went on the piss on the weekend. And uh, you can't just say, well, just start again or don't do that. It's, like, it's obvious they knew that that wasn't the best idea. But um, so... I guess then with some of the top, say, rugby players, they're like extremely strong, just genetics, genetically just gifted athletes. We know then, I guess, that a, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle if you're looking at isokinetic force or whatever. So would it make sense then? Because like on the on the pitch, they're not like doing a bench press, really. I know that you are grappling and you are, you know, using your strength like in, in a way that's not necessarily the same as, as the movements you do in the gym. Does it make sense to do, say, higher reps, higher repetitions, because it's potentially safer than, say, someone benching 180 kilos? Or is there actually transfer from the lower reps into the sporting context, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And this idea of transference or dynamic correspondence, as it's called. So how what we do in, in the gym translates to increased performance on the pitch. Um, I suppose, like that, if the goal is, is hypertrophy, there's several ways to do it. We know that we can use that higher rep, lower load, 
um, versus higher load, lower rep. Once we're going to the same kind of reps in reserve, we get similar um, outcomes in terms of hypertrophy. The caveat being, if you're using lighter load, you don't get the same increases in, in maximal strength or maximal strength expression, I should say, as tested by one or M. And but that's that's a bit of a, a rabbit hole to, to go that, down. That's what I kind of mean. Yeah, like yes, you're you're stronger doing a, a one rep Mac deadlift, but how does that transfer then to yeah? So I would have a, a tendency to go towards that higher intensity, high load, um, especially on the compound based exercises, um, because for me, I don't think that there is much of a difference in injury risk between if I load up um, a squat um, and I want my athlete to go to two reps in reserve, one rep in reserve, um, I think it'd nearly be safer doing that with a, a five or six RM load than it would a 12 RM load. Because again, once we get to that same kind of low velocity, low concentric velocity um, reps, those as we're approaching, um failure i think it's easier for athletes who maybe resistance training is not all they do so like a power lifter or a bodybuilder is skilled at resistance training and a good one is skilled at those movements it's what to do day in day out and have good motor control even when approaching failure yeah. where i'd prefer my athletes to have to keep concentration for three or four or five reps rather than having to keep concentration for um, those hard reps after doing 10 reps previously. Mm. You know what I mean? And if I can get the same hypertrophy outcome and along with a max strength outcome, that's going to be um, what I'm aiming for because the relationship to on-field performance, there's a very strong relationship between strength, maximal strength and sprint speed, maximal strength and jump speed or jump height, jump distance, um, your power measures then as well so yes they're not doing uh, a bench press on on the pitch but they are moving a po- an opponent they are um in the rook they're cleaning out the rook so you're still doing the same thing you're you need i mean again this idea of transference it's not that we want to replicate what we do on the pitch in the gym i want to make the athlete strong um in the movement domains and movement categories that they will do on the pitch um, and make the muscles strong through a full range of motion. Like, okay, they're not going to bench press on the pitch, but they're going to do a lot of horizontal pressing movements um, in, in different ways. Um, they're going to, if you're in the lineout, you're lifting in a, a vertical push. So if you try, to, and sport is chaotic, you know what I mean? Where the angles and joint angles, which will be required to generate that force on the pitch is variable that I, if I tried to replicate what we do on the pitch in the gym, I'd have to do, you know, benching from, I'd need um, a highly accurate bench that I could bench from nearly every degree and angle possible, but it, it's not the case. I want to get my athletes strong through the fundamental movement patterns, through a full range of motion. Um, if any muscles are weak, I want to strengthen those muscles. But once I get my athletes strong, and there's a point where strong is strong enough, I need to get them and teach them to express that strength more powerfully. Um, And again, this will change from the phase of the season and time of year. But um, that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to get them strong because there's a big relationship between strength and performance on the pitch. And also one of the biggest 
um, injury risk factors is, is muscular strength. Stronger athletes get injured less um, and expend less energy when, when running or engaging in locomotion. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a good segue again into the, the functional training. We talked about a bit off air. And when people often think about training for sports, they'll, they do think of Olympic lifts or other kind of complex lifts where everything seems to be made more difficult by either trying to balance on something or doing one on one leg or doing one arm at a time or something. It's functional training. And obviously it makes sense the word, you know, functional training, but is that a, is that something that is recommended to be doing these kind of exercises that perhaps work on balance at the same time as doing movements and, or are they just kind of, you know, novel ideas that don't really have any weight? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And the term functional is something that I don't like as such because, okay, if you're a power lifter, why, why are you doing a bench press? Because that's your function. That's what you need to do. So every exercise is functional because, again, they all are going towards a goal to be able to perform in a certain way. If you're a bodybuilder, you, why are you doing bicep curls? Because you need the function of your biceps to be a bit bigger and symmetrical on stage. So, you know what I mean? The, every exercise has a function and this idea that by standing on a busu ball or something like that increases the functionality um i i don't really get it and a lot of time it actually limits what you can get and the adaptations you can get because okay if i want to why why are my athletes squatting because a lot of coaches a lot of people in general get hung up on the methods like oh what method should i use where for me the methods are relevant it's Again, it goes back to the principle and the adaptation or the goal. What is the adaptation you're trying to achieve? What principle do you need to apply to do that? Now, what method you use, I don't care. You know what I mean? It's if I want to, like I always pose um, a question when I, when I teach this in class to people. I'm like, okay, what's, what's the best exercise for quad hypertrophy? That's what I say. And normally squats, squats is what I get. People are like, oh, squat or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, it's a good one. Let's say, for example, um, you don't have um, a squat rack. What do you do? And people will come up with a, another one. Oh, well, you can do goblet squat holding a dumbbell or whatever. I'm like, okay. And then I have pictures that pop up. I was like, let's say your client or your athlete is in a car crash. They have plates in their back. They can't hold any axial load. What can you do? And again, you, you boil down to, you keep going and then people say, well, I, I don't know. And that's people that only know methods that if you ask them how to increase quad size, right? Or squat, leg press, or that's, that's methods. How you do it is you apply the principle. You, you lengthen and contract the quad muscle under tension um, repeatedly and bring it close to within a couple of reps of volitional failure. And you do that progressively overload it. That's all you need to do. How you do that is, is up to you. So, you know, I mean, you can do that through a leg extension. You can do it through a, a belt squat or whatever it may be. But all those are methods. It's just about understanding the, the principle underneath. That's the most important part. So to tie that back, if I'm saying, why am I athlete squatting? I'm squ- getting them to squat because I want to increase their maximal strength. That is the adaptation I'm trying to achieve. That's the outcome I want to achieve. I want to see an increase in their maximal strength expression. Um, okay, if that's the case, what do I need to do? Well, I know, again, I need to progressively overload them. 
with high degrees of muscular tension. So I need to use high load training in general. Um, whether or not I need to bring them to um, close to failure, that's for strength, not necessarily the case. But okay, I need to increase my athlete's ability to um, squat heavy load. So that is directly proportional to the amount of force they can generate into the ground. Yeah, that, that's simply all we're doing. We're generating force into the ground that pushes the barbell up. Now, if I put my athlete on a busu ball and ask them to squat, I've added a layer of instability to that. So now all of a sudden, their ability to generate force into the ground is compromised because we know that it's, again, if you, and people think about it, if I ask you to do a one arm squat and I actually do it standing on foam or standing on a wooden platform, um, what's going to likely lead to the bigger number being lifted? It's stability. We know that we want a nice, stable surface. So by removing that, I've, yes, I've added a layer of complexity and okay, maybe we'll get some stabilizer muscles turned on, whatever that means. Um, but I've compromised my abil athlete's ability to generate force into the ground. Therefore, the load they can lift is significantly reduced. Therefore, if my goal was to increase their squat strength, um, I, I've hampered that. I've, I've let, I'm going to have lesser of an adaptation than what I could have achieved if I just removed that muscle ball. People are like, yeah, but their stability muscles is like, yeah, stability muscles are turned on just the same under high load. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's this idea of, of functional training is something that I don't get. And there's not much evidence to support that. You know what I mean? In terms of these low load perturbations. So, and that's the thing where you're on a bustle ball and, or you're standing on something, maybe you see people catching something on, on, on one leg and they're like, oh, what? that doing it's like oh it's strengthening the ankle you know so and i'm like okay for what though they're like also when they cut on the pitch that the ankle is stronger in that position i'm like okay so you have someone balancing static on one foot and catching a ball okay great when they're running near max velocity and they go to do a cut and they have five six seven times body weight forces going through that ankle at high velocity at an angle you're not replicating by standing on one leg are we really going to get that much transfer in terms of, you know, that the ligaments, muscles, tendons, proprioceptive and um, mobility of the athlete is going to be that much enhanced? No, I'd rather put them, do the, get them strong, powerful, mobile in the gym and then put them on the pitch and let them practice the skill of sidestepping. That's what we're really is going to have transfer um, across to that. So again, it comes down to just our said principle specific adaptations to impose demands and that's the way you need to think about so again function and some of these things we see again we see these on social media on twitter these doing these crazy exercises a lot of the time I, I try to check myself and be like okay you don't understand that coach's rationale maybe they have a good rationale behind it so i won't comment until i see it but a lot of time i try and come up with a rationale for it myself and and struggle and it is a case that sometimes athletes do some stupid stuff in the gym, sometimes record it and put it up on social media and people are like, oh, the coach has him doing this. Like maybe that athlete was having a laugh, did it himself. Maybe the coach doesn't even know this is going on. And maybe the coach is doing something just to get publicity on social media because they feel their job is um, not secure and they're trying to promote themselves in a different way. So you know what I mean? Like, again, say for, for your audience, 
they can pick out a uh, hundred influencers on Instagram and they see them doing these shitty little body weight circuit exercises and all this. And you're like, and this is what they're promoting to their followers. And you're like, that's not what built your physique. So don't mm. like that training is not what got you to where you are. And thing is most of these high level athletes, they become a high level athlete. They're performing at the high level. And then they start doing this kind of off the wall training. So that's not the training that got them there. They're already there but they're maybe bored or their uh, coaches experiment with them and then they're doing this um, stuff. So that's not, you know, that, that stuff that you maybe sometimes see done at the highest level is not what got them there. It's what they're doing when they get there, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. You often hear that, like, I've often heard it firsthand from, say, clients or something or, or even friends that, you know, want to get in shape, but they also would say, oh, oh yeah, I want to be able to do, like, the muscle up or... Uh, you know, some of those body weight movements that, you know, extremely difficult because it's, you know, has more function uh, for, for what, for you sitting at your desk doing your job. Uh, I mean, or when I used to work in a gym, um, there would be functional training class and you'd have middle-aged women that would be smashing a tire with a hammer. It's like, <laughs> when are they ever going to be using a hammer? <laughs> like, it's a, a housewife or they have a job, like in an office. But uh, but it's mad. Um, so final question for you, David, is... Um, I know like a lot of people listen who do play some sort of sport as well as, you know, lifting, they, they may not have access to strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and often uh, like, you know, per, if they work with personal trainers or, or even online coaches, they're not necessarily strength and conditioning coaches. They're just people who, like, as you know yourself, there's loads of people who are online coaches now since COVID um, and, and really they're just, per, they're just personal trainers that don't have a strength and conditioning background. How would they apply uh, the principles of what you mentioned into their daily life? Because I know that you, what you do is your job is often to, to manage these variables for the athletes that you work with, but a person by themselves might not be able to, to have their, that access to, to a resource like that. And maybe wondering, okay, do I need to cut my training volume down a little bit now? Because they might be reading, uh, you know, training volume principles or landmarks, you know, oh, it should be doing 10 to 20 sets, but you know, maybe I'm training in the, doing a few sessions now with the lockdowns, for example, opening back up, I maybe start training. Do I cut down my training sessions or the volume or do I do less sessions? How do they kind of start to think about these things? Yeah, it, it, it's difficult because as you said, that that's what we're kind of S&C and sports scientists are, are paid to do. But I suppose conceptually, it, it's, it's important to, as I always say, keep the goal to goal and, and reverse engineer. So, what is your goal? What is the outcome you're, you're trying to achieve? Where do you want to get to? Um, and if that's a sporting context, you're looking at the game. Okay, what do I need to do to perform well in that game? What are the physical attributes I need to have? And, you know, a lot of times there's technical and tactical side of stuff is a, is a, a whole other area you can go into. But a lot of time it's understanding the demands of the game, um, understanding, you know, that's what I, I, where do you need to get to to be at perform at the highest level you can for, for your sport or for your goal whatever it is and again people do this in bodybuilding the, you know what is the physique that's going to win on stage where now to get to and deciding okay how do i get from along that journey and once you understand that where you are now where you need to go uh, and have that clear then you just start understanding okay in the and then put into a hierarchical structure 
So, because obviously you're going to need to perform the whole way along. Same with bodybuilding. You're going to have shows all along before you get to the, the highest level. So you're going to say, okay, for me, what's the next lowest hanging fruit or what's the next most important thing? So if I say, this is me now, this is where I need to get to. What is the biggest thing holding me back at the moment um, that I could tackle? So you're asking yourself, what is in the next, in the foreseeable future or the next, whatever time that is, um, training block, half month or half year, year, what is the priority that if I accomplish that or improve that will lead to the biggest improvement um, in performance or get me closest to that? Because, you know what I mean, if you, for bodybuilding context for your um, listeners, if you're looking at yourself, okay, for me to win at the level I want to, um, the biggest difference between me now and there is, my calves are not up to scratch uh, and my delts are not up to scratch or so, or even to go. Um, yeah. So say, let's say calves and delts. Now, if you're asking someone, if someone then spends, you know, two, three years focusing just all on the calves, but never got the delts, the delts are more important in bodybuilding than the calves ever will be. Yes. You want a whole round of physique, but you know, it does, if you've big calves, but narrow little shoulders, you're never going to win a, a bodybuilding um, show at that. So it's again, understanding, yes, we want to improve it all, but having a systematic approach of what is the priority? Why is it the priority? And then how should I, I get there? So once that's the case, you're clear on where you need to get to, where you are now, and you should have some degree of testing in there and you know some sort of objective data. And you know bodybuilding, that's your... Your, your skin folds, your gut measurements, your profile or your progress pictures, your body weights, you're, you're triangulating all this data to say, yes, or I am making progress or no, I'm not making progress. And then you just adjust the variables um, as you go along. So based upon where you need to get to, you adjust these, these variables and then understanding the principles. I think like for SNC, I want most athletes in, in all cases, you know, to be strong in the fundamental movement patterns. I need athletes that can squat well, hinge well, um, vertical push and pull, horizontal push and pull, um, rotate well, and do loaded carries well. These kind of things. These are all the kind of functional movements, if you want to use that, or the, the movement patterns that I want um, strong, are strong in all those movements. Then I can start dialing in on, okay, we need to get them strong or more powerful in this specific pattern because that's going to have the biggest transfer. And then once you are clear, you've listened to what your adaptations are then. You're like, okay, I need bigger delts. I need bigger traps um, or I need X, Y, and Z. You're very clear on your goals. What are the principles I need to apply to um, do that? And if you don't know the principles, that's you can research that. You know what I mean? If you... Okay, I need bigger traps. What do you what do you mean by bigger traps? Well, I need hypertrophy in the trapezius muscles. How do I elicit hypertrophy? Principles of hypertrophy, progressive overload, muscle tension, all these things. Once you understand the principles, well, then you can just um, look at it and say, okay, um, now I understand. I'm clear on why I need to achieve or want to achieve. I'm clear on the principles need to be applied. For my given situation, for my context, what's the best method to use? Mm. You know what I mean? And then on top of that, I think the big thing that needs to be um, addressed in most things is what is the rate of progress I want? 
or I am aiming for. Because, you know what I mean? If you, if I want to hypertrophy someone, say, say for a rugby player, you know what I mean? If I got them to give up rugby and go full-time at bodybuilding, I can get them to their hypertrophy goal much quicker. But we don't have that luxury. So you have to accept that, yes, this bodybuilder will get to that hypertrophy goal quicker than you will. But you need to be comfortable with that compromise that, look, we're applying the principles of hypertrophy. Well, yes, we could get there faster. But by getting to our end goal faster in one domain, i.e. hypertrophy, that's going to significantly compromise and put at risk the other factors that you, you are chasing. I think that needs to be the same with um, people in, in their daily lives, that there are times when, yes, we're always trying to progress, but the rate of progress will not always be the same. There are periods in our life when our job is going to take priority, our relationship will take priority, or there are other things, other facets of our life that become more of a priority than our athletic goals. Mm. And at those times, I think people need to accept that there are periods when it's okay to accept a reduced rate of progress or even just a, um, a stagnation that, look, I'm going to do the amount of training and volume that allows me just to maintain what I have now for the next three, four months because I have a big project on at work and I can't dev devote the amount of time I need in the gym to keep progressing at the rate I want to progress. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. There's, there's a lot there, but I think... Uh to so sum up people the people they really need to understand what they're trying to achieve if they're doing sports and and, uh, and weight training together and not just kind of say okay how do i you know what should i do what's best for me to think about what what adaptations are they trying to elicit um and really kind of map it out themselves that that makes a lot of sense david it's been great having you on um where can people find more about you and the work you do yeah, so everything just through uh, Synapse Performance, so synapseperformance.ie, so S-Y-N-A-P-S-E, performance.ie, or just on Instagram, Synapse Performance, you'll find, it, find me all through there. That's great. And you, you have a podcast as well, which is if people want to learn more about sort of sports science and things like that, I think it's uh, very interesting. Yeah, the, the Synapse yeah. Performance podcast, yeah. yeah. That's great. Thanks a lot, David. It's been a pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Cheers.